Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 4th, 2017. Can you believe it's 2000 freaking 17? It is. It is. I know the younger people are like, so what, dude? It's just another year. Man, if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, to be thinking that we're in 2017 is... Uh, pretty big deal. We're going to talk about old stuff today. Older than me. Older than our guest, Tim Glantz. Old. You know how old? I'll put it to you this way. We're going to talk about Jeeps. Now look, a lot of cars driving around on the road today, people look at and go, man, that's an old car. When I was a kid, that was a new car. Some of the cars are called old. When I was a kid, that car hadn't been made yet. But some of these Jeeps we're going to talk about today, when I was a kid, these Jeeps were already old. So what good are they? Well, they're actually outstanding things for the homestead, and they're a good investment. You can invest in something like a, uh, you know, a Polaris or something, and put twelve, fifteen grand. You buy a new car for the price of some of these, uh, you know, ATVs, and when it breaks, it's expensive to fix. And when you sell it ten years later, if you can sell it ten years later, it's worth half of what you paid for it. How about spending a lot less money, putting some money into it, rehabbing one of these old Jeeps, and it just keeps getting to be worth more and more money because it's older than the hills. That's what we're going to talk about today, how these Jeeps fit in on the homestead, where you can find them, where you can get parts for them, how you can rehab them. We're going to be doing it with one of my really great friends and expert council member, Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus. We'll be doing all that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was... Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Snowden Home Products. They offer convenient automatic foam soap dispenser. It's perfect for your bathroom or kitchen. You have the ability to make your own soap, saving you money. This is another business owned by an MSB supporter. They are offering you a 10% discount. Simply copy and paste the URL of their listing in the directory and use the code TSPBIZ10 to get the discount. These guys are cool. They actually sent me one of these things, and we do use it. Check them out at TSPBiz.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1924, and even though I'm in a good mood, I'm going to dial it back a little bit because the history we're going to talk about today is kind of dark American history. Uh, we've got a couple segments, but I'm going to stick with the eugenics that are going on in the United States during this time because you know what? You know what? They just don't teach you this in school. No, they don't. They don't, they don't, and they should because it's dangerous shit. Here we got 1924, the year that was, because it is the episode number. Alex Shrugged has for us today, Stalin rules and Trotsky drools. This is how Stalin takes over the Soviet Union. You should read that one on your own. 
at tspwiki.com. We have sterilization. It's the law today, not 1924 today. Yeah, it is. But hold on. We have notable births. George H.W. Bush living. President of Bush the Elder. Right? Gloria Vanderbilt, who's also living still today. Heiress and mother of CNN News anchor Anderson Cooper. Who's also living. We have Rod Serling, host of The Twilight Zone. Earl Skuggs developed the three-finger picking style of a bluegrass banjo. And Laura McCall, actress and wife of Humphrey Bogart, who was old enough to be her father. Bogey, you dog. Note living means living the last time I checked, 2017, January 4. In other news, chariots of fire. Scottish Christian Eric Little refuses to compete in the Olympic event. Scheduled for Sunday. The movie is terrific. It was a great movie, also from the 80s. No more secret police. After criminal wrongdoing within the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover is put in charge. Temporarily, that will fix it. And Bonito Mussolini wins in a landslide election in Italy for the fascists. Adolf Hitler is watching closely. Let's take a look at sterilization. It's the law, not 1924. It's the law still today. Carrie Buck is a 17-year-old adopted white girl who is treated more like a servant than family. So it's not surprising when she was told to drop out of school and work as a maid. One day visiting a relative forces himself on Carrie, and she becomes pregnant. The family is willing to take the baby, but Carrie has to go. They tell Virginia authorities that Carrie is feeble-minded. They can no longer care for her. Her biological mother is already held in an institution for the feeble-minded, so Carrie is admitted. No one is interested in verifying the facts. Virginia has recently passed a law allowing forced sterilization of the feeble-minded. Carrie fits the profile. They want to take the case to the Supreme Court to lock it in. But don't worry. Carrie will have legal representation. It says so in the law. Well, her lawyer is working hand-in-glove with Virginia. This is considered unethical, but no one cares. Her lawyer will be strangely incurious about her school grades. They were reasonable. The fact that she is pregnant is proof enough of her promiscuous behavior. She was raped, but no one asked. When the doctors claim that Carrie's six-month-old baby is also feeble-minded... No one asks how a baby could be tested to determine that. Carrie is being railroaded and she doesn't know it. In a few years, the Supreme Court will rule 8-1 to one in favor of sterilization. In all that time, no one will bother to explain to Carrie that she's going to be sterilized. They are going to do it one way or the other. My take by Alex Shrugged, it's the law. Your Supreme Court has determined that forced sterilization is a state function within the bounds of the Constitution, just like vaccination. And here's the kicker. That ruling has never been overturned. Are you frightened? You should be. When President Obama appointed a science advisor that once advocated mass sterilization, it was a decision with serious potential consequences. These sort of things don't happen by accident. The Scopes monkey trial was not an accident. Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on the bus was not an accident. I'm going to throw a side note in there. It wasn't the first time someone did it either. It was absolutely orchestrated, which is what Alex goes on to say. These were contrived events meant to force the issue into the courts. The fact that we like the outcomes of the Skokes Monkey trial and the Rosa Parks decision make the process no less contrived. And if such methods can be used in our favor, they can also be used against us, as with Carrie Buck. I want you to let this sink in. While the sterilization laws themselves were repealed, if the state decided to enact such a law at this time, it would be considered constitutional by Supreme Court precedent. No future court ever overturned that ruling. 
So your government says that it has the right to sterilize you, and legally they do. They just don't have a law in place to do it with right now. I'm going to leave it there because this is going to be a good show. This is going to be a happy show. This is going to be an enjoyable show. So it is my good pleasure right now to bring on my good friend and one of the best people that I know, uh, awesome guy, Chief Warren Officer, who's been serving in our military, United States Army Reserve, or National Guard, actually, for a very long time. Been serving on our expert council for over two years with that. Hey, Tim Mann, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Great to be back, Jack. Hey, Tim, you know, you're on our expert council, so I'd say, you know, 99% of the people listening know a little bit about you anyway. Um, but there's new people tuning into the show every day. So could you just start out with, can you tell people a little bit about your background and, 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 and what you do right now? And, and then we'll get into talking about Jeeps, which is, of course, our uh, subject of the day. Okay, yeah, Jack. Uh, most people know me as the owner of the Old Grouch's Military Surplus. We're in Clyde, North Carolina. Uh, it's family business. We've been here 27 years now. I, I pretty much grew up in the business. And my dad was doing it even before we opened the, the storefront. And then I took over. Uh, on top of that, uh, I'm also a recently retired uh, Army warrant officer, retired out of the Army Reserve. Uh, did maintenance stuff. Started out as a heavy equipment mechanic, was a light wheel mechanic, was a combat engineer briefly, back to mechanic, then went warrant on the maintenance side. So picked up a lot of mechanical stuff there. And I've always uh, always messed with old Jeeps even, even before I was in, so I kind of combined those two. And then, uh, you know, for... For expert panel questions, I'm also a ham radio operator. My call sign's W4WTF. I actually got the FCC to give me that one. So I play around with that stuff a lot, too. What for WTF? Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you about that, so you brought it up anyway. Like, that's got to be a novelty call sign. That could have just been rat randomly assigned. No, I had to try for that one and got lucky. That's cool, man. So, hey, I want to congratulate you on your retirement. I didn't know that you had actually retired. I know we had talked about it, God, I guess four or five years ago. You were kind of talking about winding it down, but I, I didn't know you'd actually uh, cross that bridge. So, hey, man, congrats on that. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you know, it, it, it just reached the point where, you know, you look at everything and you say, what am I doing here? What am I doing there? And it was time to put all my energy into the shop. And now you can work on the shop and build more Jeeps. Yeah, that's true. So on that note, uh, I know you're a big fan of using these older Jeeps, whether they're the military or uh, civilian versions thereof, for homestead vehicles. What makes you like them so much as a homestead vehicle? Uh, well, there's several things. Uh, number one is that was originally, uh, once the Jeep came out on the civilian market, that was how it was intended to be used and sold. Uh, it's really morphed into something totally different, although it has the same looks. But when you went in in 1946 to buy one of the first models of a civilian Jeep, uh, you know, you were buying something with a top speed of about 45 miles an hour, and the the dealer was going to ask you, do you want a three-point hitch? Do you want a PTO? Uh, do you want all these accessories? Uh, do you want front weights to run it like a tractor? And when you look at what they are and what they were then, what the Jeep was in the 40s and 50s and early 60s is what we now call a UTV, and or a side-by-side, -side, and you pay uh, good money for it to use on the farm. And it basically fills the same role with the exception of the Jeep could also get on the road and run to town when you needed to. Can you talk a little and, about uh, – oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought you were done there. Uh, and one of the things I really love about them is they're super simple. 
Uh, you don't need any special skills or any special tools or anything else to work on them. You get the manual. You, even if you don't know anything about mechanics, you can dive in and work on it. About the only thing is a lot of people anymore don't have fractional tools. They've all got metrics, so you got to make sure you get the fractional stuff. Yeah, we used to call the metric wrenches back when I was in the military the communist wrenches. I guess now they're the standard wrenches. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it's done. Uh... <laughs> Maybe one of them communist uh, nine-millimeter wrenches over there. <laughs> um, but I was going to say, could you talk a little bit about the differences? We talk a lot about military uh, jeeps, military surplus here and there, and then you, you're kind of taking the bridge over to uh, civilian models, and you kind of alluded to it, but like if you go out and buy a jeep today or even a jeep that was made – 20 years ago, they bear little resemblance to the stuff we're talking about. So can you kind of talk about that transition to civilian, what's the difference, and where's kind of the the cutoff to where the stuff we're talking about today, they stopped making it and they went more to the, you know, big-time off-roaders that, you know, you lift way up and just kind of make all that work together for us. Okay, yeah, I'll give you a brief history of kind of how, how the, the Jeep developed and that'll, that'll fill a lot of that in. Uh, the Army, uh, prior to World War II, saw that, you know, war was coming, and they put out a requirement for a reconnaissance car. And I don't think at the time anybody had any idea what they were setting in motion. And they wanted to be small, lightweight. In fact, the, the specification for what they put was unrealistic, and they, they, they never did meet it. And uh, they put it out there to a bunch of companies, and almost every company said, no, this can't be done. And one little company up in Pennsylvania, Bantam Car Company, said, we can do it. Well, Bantam was on the brink of bankruptcy. They had already shut down the production line. They had a handful of designers working, trying to come up with something. And they built a running prototype of the Jeep and delivered it in less than 90 days. And when they did that, the Army said, okay, there's some merit here, but, you know, let's expand it a little further. And they brought in Willis and Ford also and said, hey, you, look, you guys look at this, and we want prototypes from you too. They all delivered their prototypes. Uh, there was a good bit of controversy about Ford and Willis getting to see Bantam's product and then trying to make an improved one. And in the end, the Willis uh, version won. And then they went into mass production. It quickly became apparent that Willis couldn't make enough of them because they had been close to bankruptcy, too, due to the Depression before the war. And so Ford was contracted. And during World War II, Ford and Willis made pretty much the identical product. Uh, the Willis was called the MA, I mean, sorry, model MB, and the Ford was designated the GPW. And there are some minor differences, but very minor. But the biggest difference you'll ever notice if you look at them is uh, Edsel Ford demanded that every single part on a Ford-made Jeep have the Ford script F on it hmm. because he said he wasn't going to pay a warranty claim on any Willis parts. So right down to every single head of every bolt has an F on it on one of those. And if you're ever restoring one factory perfect, it can be aggravating. But as World War II was winding down, Willis looked at it and said, hey, we've got this great product. It's pulled us out of bankruptcy. We need to roll with it because now every GI coming home is going to know how great it is. And they came out with the CJ, which stands for Civilian Jeep. And you first model, they made one prototype of the CJ-1. Then there was the CJ-2 they made a few prototypes of. And the CJ-2A was the first model, and it hit the sales floor uh, just a few months after World War II ended. It was like the World War II Jeep, except that it had uh, some slightly heavier-duty components. The transmission was heavier. And, in fact, that same T-90 transmission started in '46 and was used in Jeeps through the 70s. 
Uh, it had a heavier frame and some other stuff. And, and like I alluded to, they really went after the, the market of the farmers and the homesteaders. So they had PTOs. They had uh, uh, mowers. They had three-point hitches where you could use tractor implements and all this stuff. And if you look at some of the period sales literature, they went, really went after that. Uh, the CJ2A continued until, I believe, 49, and then they came out with the 3A, which had the same drivetrain, the same uh, flathead or L-head, uh, as, as they call it, engine, and it had a slightly heavier-duty suspension, some, some changes. And now they also made that model when the Korean War started. Uh, the military hadn't bought any Jeeps uh, from 45. They were still running in World War II stocks. They started buying a militarized version of that and called it the M38, and it was kind of a stopgap for only a few years. Then the next one that came out was the CJ3B, and if you've ever seen the flat fender Jeep with the really high hood, that was it. And the whole reason for that is they came out with a new engine that was what's called an F-head, and people think F-head as in a flathead, but it's not, and that can cause a lot of confusion. The F-head engine, uh, well, on a flathead engine, your valve, your intake and your exhaust valves are all in the block. Uh, your cylinder head is literally just a slab of metal with no moving parts. And the F-head engine moved the intake valves up into the cylinder head and left the exhaust valves down in the block. And the carburetor actually di bolted directly to the cylinder head. And by doing this, they raised it from 60 horsepower to, I think, about 74, 75 which doesn't seem like a big jump, but, you know, that's almost 25, 20% uh, increase in horsepower. And with the gearing, I mean, that's the thing about a Jeep. It's like it's like a, uh, it's, it's like a washing machine with, with a transmission in it. it. It seems ridiculous, but it'll go anywhere with that gearing. Yep, yep. They're low-geared. You know, any of those models, you know, in theory, if you do the math, you can take them up to about 58 miles an hour. Reality is, if you go past 45, you're a fool. Uh, you can put an overdrive on it, get them, a little, get them faster without taxing that engine, but you still have steering and brakes and everything else that weren't designed for the high speed. But, you know, it it was never intended for that. It was the utility vehicle that the farmer at the most might be taking to town, you know, five or ten miles away, so 45 miles an hour was totally acceptable. And the, the next model that came out uh, was actually one where it was called the M38A1 first. It was a military Jeep. And the M38A1, then a couple years later, came on the civilian market as what we know as the CJ5. And the CJ5 uh, had one of the longest production runs, I believe it was 1954 until 1983. And the only reason it went out in 1983 was all of a sudden there was this TV news report about how dangerous it was it could roll over, and they had this dramatic footage Come to find out later that uh, to get the footage of the eight rollovers, they had to try <laughs> over 400 times to roll it and add weights to the side and everything else. Jeez. But by the time that came to light, the, the model was already dead. But for, for what we're talking about, really through a, the mid-60s is about where they, they are the useful Jeep with the simplicity and all that. They kept that same F-head engine into the mid-60s, and then you could get that, and they added the option of a Buick V6. When you go past that, you start getting into uh, the years when AMC bought them out, and then they, they lengthened them. They started adding the creature comforts and everything else. And that's where it became more of an on-road vehicle that can also go off-road, 
like we have now than it was the off-road vehicle, utility vehicle that, hey, you can also take this down the highway. And that was really the big swap. You know, that's really interesting. I've never actually heard anybody break it down like that, but also to get to that, that accumulation point there that the vehicle started out as an off-road vehicle that could go on-road and turned into an on-road vehicle that could go off-road. And I think most of us are familiar with the more modern Jeep, and uh, that's that, that's kind of cool to think about it that way. I know my my uncle had a CJ5, but it was like a you know the late 70s model CJ5, and it wasn't like the stuff we're really talking about today. Yeah, and, and they can do it, but one of the biggest things, you know, you mentioned the gearing earlier, the biggest thing you lost when you went to that on-road first is the low gearing. Yeah. You know, I can take one of my old Jeeps, I can put it in low range first gear, and I can go out and walk ahead of it, and it's just going to crawl along, but it'll pull anything at that slow pace. And when they went to, you know, giving you high road speeds, the trade-off was you lost that low gearing. You can have one or the other, but not both, I guess, especially when you're, you know, pulling 40 to 60 horsepower. Um, so what models are we looking for that work best for our needs? So we're looking, like I said, mid-60s back? Yeah, and, uh, you know, people always look and say, oh, I want the military Jeep. It's tougher. Uh, in reality, it's not. Hmm. The the uh, M38, well, first we'll start with the World War II model. They, of all the Jeeps, were the weakest model because they were trying to keep them light. The frames are not as strong. Uh, they had a weaker transmission, the T84. And on top of that, the other reason you don't want them is they have more collector value on the World War II ones. Okay. So if you get one of those to build up, you're starting with a weaker product that is going to cost you more and is worth more to somebody that's a collector. Um, when you, you look at your garage and in parades, right? You don't want it out in the in the dirt pulling a plow or something. You, you that's a that's yeah. a that's a showcase vehicle you're, you're working with there. And if you find one that needs restoration, you might say, well, you know, I've got to take it back anyway. I'm going to build what I want. But you could probably sell it to the person that's going to restore it and get more money to start with something else. I got you. Uh, the the M38 uh, military model was nothing more than the CJ3A with a 24-volt electrical system and a couple other very minor changes. And then the M38A1 was the only other military model Jeep of the era, and it it's the same thing. It's the CJ5 with some minor changes uh, and the 24-volt electrical. And you don't want that 24-volt electrical system anyway for what we're doing because parts are hard to get. It's a pain, and you can't run your accessories off of it. So the the three options to look at, you've got the CJ2A, uh, the CJ3A, well, 3B and CJ5. Of those, uh, my favorite is probably the CJ3A. And it's got a slightly heavier suspension than the 2A had. One thing I will say for for any of you fellows that are tall or, or have a big waistline, if you've ever tried to sit in a World War II Jeep or a CJ2A, you might not even be able to sit in it because the seat was way up against the steer wheel. It was done on the World War II spacing, and people in the 40s were a lot smaller than they are today. And on the CJ3A, they actually moved made the wheel well smaller so they can move the seat back several inches. Mechanically, they're, you know, between the 2A, the 3A, the 3B, and the early CJ5, the drivetrains are almost identical. You've got the same transfer case, same front axles. The rear axles could change a little bit. 
uh, and the same transmission, only the engine changed in some of them. So any of those can actually work for our needs. It, a lot of it depends on what you find that uh, is at a good price near you. So what are we looking for when we come to buy one? I've, I've tooled around online since you got me interested in this, and I see some that are really in decent shape restored. I see some that are in running condition that could use some love, and I see some that, like, the guy seems to be asking ridiculous amounts of money. It's laying in a garage, and it's in pieces and parts, and it doesn't run, and he wants seven grand for it. And I'm, I'm figuring that's not one I want, but what are we looking for? Um, the biggest keys I look for is, uh, number one, is a solid frame. Now, you can buy new frames, but if you're going to buy a new frame, you might as well just buy the new frame and buy all the pieces and build a Jeep You know, that's all new, which you can actually do because of the parts availability on these. A solid frame is a must. You can buy replacement bodies. Uh, depends on how much money you want to go into one, but if you've got to totally replace the body, you're going to put a lot of money into it. Uh, a solid frame and a solid enough body where it's usable or I can make it usable when we're talking about the farm or the homestead Jeep is where I'm looking at. Uh, one thing that will vary state by state, in some states, if this old vehicle doesn't have a title, it's no big deal. In other states, if it doesn't come with a title, you're in for a load of headache. Mm. So if you haven't investigated that uh, in your state, check it out. Because sellers will always tell you, oh, you can just apply for a lost title. It's no big deal. And like in North Carolina, it's kind of a big deal. Because if that they run that VIN number and it comes back to somebody else that owned it 20 years ago, they're going to say, hey, go track this person down or their heirs and get them to sign it over to you. Uh, so I always tell people my line when somebody says on something like that, well, it's no big deal to do it. I say, well, you do it and I'll pay you a little bit more for it if it's no big deal. <laughs> Suddenly, it's a bigger deal. Yeah. And, and uh, that's also the line I use. Well, all it needs is a carb rebuild, and it'll be good to go, so that's no big deal. And I say, well, well I'll pay you a little extra if you do the carb rebuild. So it's no big deal. Suddenly, well, well yeah. <laughs> and the difference um, in that is I'd rather, I'd rather negotiate the price down and do the carb rebuild myself than negotiate the price down and try to get a title in a state where it's difficult to do. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Because carburetors, you know, carburetors are logical and government's not. That is true. In some states, it's no big deal. In Georgia, they don't even title vehicles older than, I think, 83. And you take a bill of sale in for it, you get a tag. I wish it was that way in North Carolina, but we're the polar opposite. The uh, Look for, you know, if it runs, drives, and stops, you're miles ahead of the game, you know, because you know what you've got. If you can actually take it around and run it and drive it, then you know what you've got. Don't ever take anybody's word for, oh, it just needs this, this, and this, and it's good. Because uh, <laughs> like I said, if it just needed simple stuff, why didn't they do it? Yeah. A non-running vehicle, buy it on the assumption that you're going to have to redo everything on it. Now, typically, you don't have much trouble out of axles. You know, you take care of those. You look at the fluid. If it's not full of water, you'll probably be good. Transfer cases, you know, it, it, it's it's Transfer case, at the worst case, if you've got a bad one, you can probably pick up a used one for 100 bucks because it's a very common transfer case. Engines, you know, if it's not running, go ahead and budget your buying prices if you're going to either put a different engine in it or rebuild the one that's in it. Uh, and, and you've got the option there of either sticking with the original style engine or they make adapter kits to put a whole host of different other engines in them. Uh, other than that, you know, don't get too 
tied up in, oh, I want this one. You know, let a deal pass you by because there's plenty of these out there and more will come around. Yeah, I think that's one of the cool things I've noticed about them is that, like, some things you want, if you find one, even if the guy's asking too much for it, if you really want one, you gotta, you gotta yield and you gotta do it. But with these, it doesn't seem like there's any shortage. No, uh, you know, they made, uh, I think I was, I was looking before we called, uh, the CJ2A, there was about a quarter million of them made. And, uh, of course, CJ5s, they had such a long run, they made a bunch of them, but they're out there. People, people keep dragging them out of barns and everything else. Uh, they're very simple, like I said, to work on. And you can find them out there. Uh, you, you find more of them, of course, you know, in the northern states, the rust took its toll on them. And so you find more of them out south. You probably find a lot more of them around Texas, but, but they're out there and they can be found. Now, if you do start looking for some of the stuff, like when they had the rare accessories, like the three point hitches, and the PTOs and all that, uh, those will cost more. They made an overdrive for them, uh, that lets you go on higher highway speeds. You're going to pay more for those, but look around and see what that stuff sells for. Cause things like those three point hitches, uh, they are crazy expensive. So if you can find one and it's on the Jeep and he's not asking that much more for it, then, uh, that's definitely good. The same thing for like a PTO winch. Uh, I picked up one one time, and the guy priced it. It had a PTO winch on it, and I I sold the PTO and the winch for more than I paid for the whole Jeep, and it was a runner just because you don't find those accessories as much. Very cool. So if you're, you've kind of mentioned a few things already, but, like, if you're going, you're going to buy one of these things, and a lot of people think restore, but as soon as you get in the word Jeep, people also think modification. And these, these older ones have limits to what we can do. You're not going to be jacking these things up to the height of my house or something. But what are maybe some modifications you might want to do on some of these vehicles? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and then there's restorations and then there's uh, rebuilds. And when I start thinking of a, you know, a homestead Jeep, I'm thinking of a rebuild to make it what I want it to be. And I'm actually looking for one right now uh, that I'm probably going to, you know, do a homestead rebuild the way I want to and document it. And I'll definitely share that with everybody as I do it. One of the first things is most of these older ones were a six-volt electrical system, unless you get a military one that was a 24. And you really want to make it a 12-volt. Uh, it's very easy to do, especially on the six volts. Uh, you have to change your all your bulbs, your headlights and your instrument lights. You have to change your amp meter. You have to change your coil. And you have to swap that old generator out for uh, the easiest way to go is get what they call a one-wire alternator. And if you go into the parts store, say one-wire or say an agriculture alternator, uh, look for the oldest guy behind the parts counter. He'll probably know what you're talking about and get you one. And you simply uh, bolt that on in place of the generator, and it's got one wire goes to the positive battery terminal, easiest thing in the world. And on these old Jeeps, your your 6-volt starter will actually work just fine, in fact, better than it's ever worked on 12 volts. And I've done that on all mine that were 6-volt. And, you know, not only do you get better starting and everything, but 6-volt batteries are a pain to buy. 6-volt accessories, you, you know, you can't run anything off 6 volts anymore because you're looking in the vintage collector car catalog for even simple accessories. And uh, even something as simple as bulbs, you know, most of the parts stores don't have them. So by changing it to 12 volt, you've eliminated all that issue. I like uh, I like a winch on mine, uh, but not a big self-recovery winch, but like a small ATV winch on the front just for utility stuff. 
you know, I'm not going to be taking it someplace on the homestead where I typically am going to get stuck. I'm going to try to avoid creating those kind of mud pits on my own property. But a little ATV winch on the front is a super handy thing. Uh, I typically, when I'm doing one, I will look at mounting uh, toolboxes to it. And, you know, being in the surplus business, I just bolt a few ammo cans to it. And the way I do it on most of them is I've actually, under the hood on these things, they've got a ton of room. So I just bolt a couple ammo cans underneath on the side of the fender, and then I've got a toolbox mounted under there. It's under the hood, so it's out of the weather. Uh, not that it would get wet anyway, but it's out of my way. And that's extremely handy. Uh, some extra lighting, especially I, I like a backup light, just typically one you know tractor light like from Tractor Supply uh, mounted to the rear that I can turn on so when I'm working or when I'm backing up on a trailer hitch. That's one of the things I like. And they did make the three-point hitches for them. I will tell you that if you find one, they're crazy expensive for the collectors now. But there are some ATV three-point hitches made that go into a uh, receiver hitch. And I think when I do mine, I've had some friends that did this. They put a receiver hitch on it, and then they use that ATV-style hookup to run uh, basically Category 0 three-point implements behind the Jeep. And then you can run a scrape blade. You can run a small plow. Uh, you can run any of that stuff behind it. If you're running anything that's got, you know, a lot of weight, you probably want to put some weights up front, but that's very easy to do. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to them to uh, do that. Uh, if you want to swap the engines out, they make a whole host of uh, kits and adapters. There's uh, Advanced Adapters and Novak Enterprises are the two companies I generally recommend people look at for adapters. And they, uh, you can put anything in the world in those uh I tell you right now, don't go put a 350 V8 in these things. You'll, you'll rip up parts, and you'll probably kill yourself. Yeah, they're not made for that kind of power. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite swaps for the kind of stuff we're talking about is you can put the 2.3 Ford motors that came in Pintos, Mustangs, Ford Rangers, and all that in them. And I like that engine because it's a lightweight engine. It, it's not heavy on the front end. It makes more power than the original one did, but without having a crazy amount of power that, you know, is going to start tearing stuff up or get you into trouble. It it will rev higher than the original engine, so you can go a little, you know, higher road speed with those low gears without stressing the engine. And parts availability is super simple. The, the engines are easy to find. Every part store has pretty much got every part, you know, either on hand or they get it from the warehouse later that day. And it's just an easy engine to work on, even as a more modern one, uh, than uh, many of the other swaps. I wish I could say there was a good diesel swap option for these Jeeps out there right now, but there's not. I'd love to put like a Kubota D905 or one of their little three-cylinders in them. But unless you're a machinist who can sit there and custom-make no housing adapters, that's not really an option right now. Very cool. So, um... Uh, you were talking about parts there a bit. So when I start thinking about working on a vehicle that was made before I was born, um, I worry about parts availability. So what parts can you purchase? What's available? Where do you find parts? Uh, how important it is to use, you know, like original parts. And, and when you start swapping motors, you, you end up, okay, now I need parts for this motor, but this vehicle. So what, what's the availability like all that stuff? Uh, one of the great things about old Jeeps is there's such a fan base that, 
I could literally right now build a Jeep without a single original part. You can get frames, you can get bodies, you can get every single thing you could ever want for them. Uh, it's not always, you know, hey, I'm going to run down to the parts store. You have to get a bit of a relationship with some of these vendors on some of these. But even on original parts, if I walk into the Napa with, with an original one, there's not much they can't get me uh, next day. Uh, bodies are available. My favorite source for bodies is a gentleman by the name of Daryl Bensinger. He's in Pennsylvania. I believe dlbensinger.com is his uh, his website. He has got bodies for every model of these you could, out there, and he is the man to talk to with knowledge on putting the body swaps in. That's one of the reasons I really send people to him. There are cheaper places for bodies, but there aren't ones that will treat you better and know more about them. Uh, there's a company called Kaiser Willis out of Aiken, South Carolina, and they have got about everything under the sun. But uh, parts are very much available, available for everything. In fact, uh, one of the things that was starting to dry up were actually engine blocks for the old flathead engines since it had been out of production for so long. And that there's now a gentleman, I actually was at a show this summer and saw his prototype. He is this year bringing the flathead engine back into production. Oh, wow. The tooling's been made up, and uh, it's going to be made right back to the original specs with original casting numbers and everything. So uh, quite literally, every single part is, is out there for these, and that's one of the great things about them. Uh, parts I would keep on hand if I was using one you know, on a homestead. I would have an extra clutch kit sitting around, U-joints, uh, uh, a carburetor. And now on the carburetors, there's, there's a few different options on the original engines. You can get the original carburetors rebuilt, or there's a company up called Solex that makes them in India because they were kept these Jeeps in production uh, in India way longer than we kept them here. The Carters, they are rebuildable. If you know the art of rebuilding a carburetor or you find that oldest guy at the oldest garage in town who still knows how to rebuild a carburetor. Who knows what a carburetor is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The Solexes are cheap enough that they're almost disposable. You can get rebuild kits for them. Uh, but typically, you know, you can pick the Solexes up around the $100 price range. Uh, I run Solexes on a lot of mine because I find them easier to tune. Uh, and because on the Carters, if you find a good one, you can sell the core out on eBay for more than you can buy a brand new Solex for. And, you know, you, you, you can keep rebuilding carburetors, but eventually, you know, things get warped, uh, threads get stripped and everything else. So if you're not doing a full restoration, uh, buy two Solexes and uh, keep a spare. And if you have issues with it, just swap it out is what I recommend people do. Uh, you can keep uh, points and condensers on hand uh, for people that don't like adjusting points and condensers. And they also make an electronic uh, ignition distributor that will go in it now that takes that hassle out. Uh, so either uh, you keep a spare distributor is what I do because you can pick up used distributors cheap on eBay. I mean, if you're running one of the electronics one, you know, you can, if you took out one of the points of condenser one, make sure it's good shape, put it on the shelf. And, uh, you know, you might want to keep a starter on hand. And, you know, if you're running one of the one-wire alternators, you can keep one of those on hand, but typically the parts stores have those on hand. Past that, uh, you know, and some wheel bearings. Keep a set of those on hand. Past that, you know, 
they're pretty easy to get stuff for. Uh, you can get brake shoes easily enough, brake drums easily enough. They still make new brake drums for them. But, but the parts I listed are the stuff I try to keep on the shelf because there might be a longer lead time. And if I'm doing some job, especially on a homestead where, hey, I need to do this, I don't have two or three days to wait for the part. Those are the ones that could be showstoppers uh, that I can get in there quick and get back in the game. And I guess they're not really that expensive anyway. So having stuff like that on hand, even if you could go down to Napa and get it, you don't have to go down to Napa and get it. Um, whenever yeah, I'm that, doing, that's exactly right. You know, whenever I'm doing plumbing work, I'll, I'll buy a bunch of fittings and stuff, and Dorothy's like, well, well, you already have a bunch of that stuff. I'm like, yeah, but you know the most expensive fitting? The one when you're almost done with the job and you don't have it, and you have to stop and go pay 75 cents for it, but it, it takes up two hours of your time. That. That, that, yep. That's the kind of thinking there. Oh, yeah, yep. And, and, you know, if you're looking from this from a prepping and survival standpoint, you know, having it on hand if that map is not open for whatever reason. And I'm I'm always proud of eBay and Craigslist and if somebody's selling some Jeep parts, you know, hey, the other day somebody had a complete front axle and 50 bucks. Heck, if I had to go buy one tie rod in and they were good, you know, that that would have been more than that much less the brake drums and everything else that are on it. I drove 30 minutes, went and picked it up, and it's sitting on the shelf at the house. Yeah, it is. Uh, another nice thing about these, two people could pick that axle up with ease and move it around. That's true. They're so light. That's absolutely true. They're, they're a, a small uh, vehicle. Yeah, you, you don't need a lot of specialized tools to work on them. You don't need a huge workshop. You know, you can pick up the transmission with one person that, you know, uh, two people can pick up and move an engine block. Uh, you don't need a giant hoist to pull an engine to do a job. Everything is well within the grasp of a homesteader with a basic tool set. So if somebody wants to get one of these and, and start working on it, where, where would you suggest people look or maybe not look when it comes to trying to find one of these? Um, you know, Craigslist, I guess I've heard you mention, eBay, your local paper. I mean, where would you start your search for the vehicle you want to restore? Craigslist and eBay uh, are, are two good sources. Uh, use a lot of search terms, uh, Jeep, Jeep CJ, Willis, uh, Army Jeep. Now, let me tell you, everybody on Craigslist is sure they've got a military Jeep because it was green at one point. Uh, you know, get yourself – you can download the charts that show the ID and look and see what you got because I probably for – Every 30 Jeeps that somebody comes in my store and says, hey, I've got a military Jeep, one of them turns out to be a military Jeep. Because, you know, most people don't know what they're looking at. And and a lot of times, uh, because so much stuff was universal on these, you end up looking at something that's what I call Jeep salad. And it might be a frame from one thing with a body tub from another and, and a windshield frame from another. And sometimes half the fun is deciphering what, you know, three generations of farmers have done to this Jeep over the years is they – Put whatever parts on it. Uh, ask around is one of the big things. You know, go into places to to, to uh, your auto parts stores, especially if you got any locally owned ones. Ask around. Go down to the local tractor place. You know, that sells tractors. Say, hey, can I put up a sign that says I buy old Jeeps in here? Uh, looking for an old Jeep, and you know, some farmer might say, my gosh, that thing's been in the back of the barn forever. Maybe I need to get rid of this thing. And uh, estate sales, sometimes, especially if you see an estate sale at a farm, there might be one sitting out there. 
And then there are dealers, you know, some people, you know, a restoration or a rebuild is not within their grasp, and there are dealers out there that will do these. I've got a friend not far from me uh, that, you know, rebuilds Jeeps from people, and he'll take them everywhere from the, hey, I got it running and driving good for you. We're going to leave the body alone to a, it looks like it left the factory floor restoration. And for some people, they, they might want one of these, and they don't have the time to do that. Uh, you can find either dealers that have done that or uh you can find find them on eBay where they've done that. eBay, you know, you get what you get. If you find somebody that's actually got a shop doing it, you know, you've got a little bit more of a, hey, he's done this right, his name's on it kind of thing. Uh, in the southeast, uh, C&D Auto Restorations in Saluda, North Carolina, I'll throw him a plug. My friend Dustin, he does some beautiful work on them. Uh, you know, and people people travel to see him do some things sometimes. For a small shop, you, you drive by, you wouldn't think, think, you know, oh, there's a guy that does all the Jeeps, but he does a wonderful job. And for everybody else, there's probably somebody in your neighborhood that does the same thing if you ask around. Got you. So um, what what would you say, like, I know the market's going to market, right? But, you know, spitballing, one that's pretty pretty roughed up, but it's, it's running, you know, uh, compared to one that was like, You know, you know, Bubba restored a little bit. It's in it's in better shape, but it wasn't really done right to something that's like what you just talked about, where it almost came off the showroom floor. What kind of price? And I know there's different models, but like spitball, so people know when they're looking at something whether it's even reasonable or not. Yeah, uh, typical price you see around, let's say, you know, a Sabian Jeep from that era, running but rough. Uh, you can catch them anywhere from a thousand to three thousand, depending on the market. Uh, depending on you know how bad the body is, uh, you know, uh, is there a title? Uh, the bubbed restoration where they're you know the paint looks shiny, but when you look underneath it, there's a street sign for the floorboard, and you know the, the switches are all bypassed, and he's got different stuff because he made his own electrical system. You know, I wouldn't put more than five thousand in one of those. Uh, you know, restored factory showroom. You're looking ten to fifteen asking prices, but you know, closer to the ten is is where you'd want to be in them. And to, to kind of compare that, if you looked at you know a brand new John Deere Gator or one of the Kubota UTVs, they they will start at ten. Yeah. But if you went out today and bought a fully restored CJ3A for ten, or you bought that Kubota for ten. Five years from now, that Kubota, you'll be lucky to get five out of it. And if you took care of that CJ, it'll probably be worth, you know, at least 10, maybe 11 or 12. Maybe 11 or 12, yeah, because the time goes on, the less of them there are, one way or the other. Yep. The, the, these things are appreciating instead of the, the factory new stuff that depreciates before. You've got 30 years before they start going back up the, oh, this is old curve. Well, and I still have something I can take uh, on the road. I mean that's that's a huge yeah. thing to me. You you spend like you said ten thousand and up. Like, I've seen Kubotas at like Bass Pro Shops at sixteen nine ninety nine, and I, I look at it and go, "You've got to be out of your mind." I mean, you have to be flipping out of your mind to spend that kind of. And I, and I'm, I'm gonna say this, and I know it's gonna piss some people off to like them, but they break all the time. I mean, they constantly break down. Everybody I know that has one of those side by sides on a farm that does any any kind of real work with it. Oh, this one's got you know the the back axle out, or this one's got the front axle out. I mean, those are the two things I hear all the time. And the parts are expensive is is all get out for them. You'd think they were a thing made in the '60s. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The parts are expensive for them, uh, 
and you're going to need more specialized stuff to work on them. Well, and, that's true. You know, you've got probably lower parts availability because it's just a Kubota dealer. You're not going to walk into Napa and say you need a wheel bearing for that. No. Uh, unless you actually pulled the wheel bearing out, crossed it, got the guides, and figured out, you know, an SKF part number for it. And, you know, a lot of those takes a lot more. You, if you bust a hydrostatic transmission in one of those, uh, your typical homesteader's not going to be into that doing anything with it. No. No. If you could, if you could uh, put together no. an erector set, you can work on a Jeep. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, really? I don't, there are super simple. Uh, you know, I, a friend of mine went through one time and calculated out. He said, there's about a dozen socket sizes and wrench sizes you need for everything on one of those Jeeps. Hmm. And, and that's it. In one of those uh, ammo cans that you have under the hood. And that, that's another thing I yep. want to come back to. Part of what makes them easy to work on. And, and I, I remember, you know, I remember being a kid in the seventies and eighties and working on cars with my dad that at that t point were, you know, before the age of smog prevention. Right. And I remember yep. anything, you open the hood and there was room everywhere. And it's not just the simplicity, it's just that the accessibility made it easy to work on. If you needed to, to pull a spark plug out, well, there's a spark plug. Take a ratchet, pull the spark plug out. Not, well, let's move 75 wires out of the way, pull a valve cover off, and try to get to a spark plug. You know, I mean, even the freaking Humvees I remember working on, I'm sure you would agree that whoever designed that tunnel cover in a Humvee that didn't make it just an inch wider so you could stick your hand in there to get at those uh, injector lines. It just needs to be beaten because of how you cut your hand up to, to replace the gaskets on the valve covers. But with these older vehicles, oh, you can get to anything. Yeah, uh, that's one of the great things about them. Everything is, is right there. You know, an old friend of mine that's retired, W5, would say, you know, it's not anything that you need the hands of a 11-year-old uh, uh, Asian girl to get in there to reach. <laughs> yeah, everything's accessible. Uh you got plenty of room. you got plenty of room to do everything. It's what makes them so easy to put these other engines. Now, I've seen people that go out and they've got to put a, you know, a Chevy big block V8 in one of these and do everything, and then you can't reach it anything. Well, then you're an idiot. I saw a guy did that, and he literally had to pull the fenders off to change his spark plugs. <laughs> but as bad as that sounds, you can pull the fender off one of these Jeeps in about six minutes. Yeah. Uh, because they're so easy to mess with. But, yeah, it's it's. For people that don't know, that maybe sound intimidated by this because they don't know anything about mechanical stuff and don't know, that's what makes these a really good thing to learn on. Now, you're not going to learn fuel injection. You're not going to learn computerized systems, but you're going to learn the basics of how mechanical stuff works, and it's all going to be right there where you can see it and get in and see what you're doing and, 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 and learn about it without having to you know feel around and I don't even know what's under there or be intimidated by it. You know, the uh, the entire wiring harness for one of these. I, I bought one one time, and somebody had ripped every wire out. And instead of buying one of the reproduction wiring harnesses, I went out and bought some bulk wire. I made my own wiring harness in about six hours for everything. Wow. Because they're so simple. That's impressive. You know, because, yeah, I can't even imagine doing that with a modern vehicle. It just, no. No, you, well, you couldn't. Uh, couldn't because, you know, some of them, the sensors have to have exactly the exact resistance on the factory wire And if you so much as put a splice in it, it throws things off. If it's not the right length by a couple millimeters, it'll throw off the resistance and it won't work. That's yeah. Yeah. And don't get me started on some of the new Ford trucks where the first step to, you know, working on the engine is to remove the cab. <laughs> 
kind of on that, since you know we, we've got some time left, Tim, if you've got it to be here, I, I would say these are one of the best vehicles out there for people to pick up and work on. But you, you, you know, you have a, a long military history, uh, and one of the vehicles we share in common in our military time, and and I got in right when they were leaving. And you were probably there before they 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 were close to that and and, and watched them get phased out. Is the uh, the Cubvies the 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 1009 oh, and 1008s? Yeah. Um, I, I think that for people that maybe are going, maybe the Jeep's not a thing for me, but they want kind of something to get their hands on for a reasonable price and have as a project vehicle and get some utility out. Those are probably the other two vehicles that really make sense for. Kind of like that truck on the homestead that can just do work, and you don't really care if it gets beat up, but it can still go to town. Oh yeah, they're, they're great. Uh, the the 1008 series trucks was the strongest drivetrain GM ever put under a production line truck. They, uh, you know, it's got a GM 14 bolt axle in the rear with a Detroit locker, and uh, a Dana 60 in the front. Probably 70 percent of those trucks that have been produced. People scrapped because they wanted the axles building custom trucks out of. That's how desirable those were. Uh, the people, you know, they will look at it and say, "Well, the weak links that engine, that six-two engine, is junk." The six-two now it's not a Cummins, it's not a power stroke, but when you look at it for what it was designed to be, which was an economical diesel engine uh, that was, you know, not high power, not for all that, it, it does fine. Uh, the the reason these got a bad reputation for that engine is that like the Jeeps, the military ordered these with low gearing. You know, 55 is the top you want to go in them without overstressing the engine. And people bought them on the surplus market, didn't understand, hey, you know, I should keep this at 55. We're running those engines at the governor at 65. And, you know, of course, they started blowing crankshafts. And the other reason for that is that, you know, you do have to watch the harmonic balancer on a 6.2. They will go bad. Uh, and if they go bad, uh, you will tear up a crankshaft. But if you, uh, you know, for anybody that buys one of these trucks, just go ahead and replace a harmonic balancer. It's not that expensive, and then you don't have to worry about it. But I've got one. Uh, I, I've customized it a little bit. I put a 700 R4 transmission I had built for it in place of the uh, Turbo 400, which gave me an overdrive. So now I can safely run 70 down the highway. Uh, now, when you look at the 1009, which was the Blazer variant, they had uh, higher gearing. You can run 70 down the highway all day long, and then you just don't have the same towing capacity or, or the same uh, heavy-duty uh, drivetrain. In and we should probably hold right but there for people sim- that might be a little bit lost. So the, 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 we're talking about the old military pickup trucks and Blazers. And when Tim says 1008, he's talking about the pickup truck-looking one. 1009 is the Blazer one for those that may be a little lost. And, and then go ahead, sir. Yeah, and uh, – the one modification I tell everybody to do, unless you've got a bunch of military stuff you need to keep it around for, uh, go ahead and convert that truck to 12 volts because the, the, the one weak link in these trucks is the factory electrical system was, I, I swear, was designed on engineers that smoke crack every day before they came to work. <laughs> because they started with a 12-volt truck, and the, and the Army said, no, we need this truck to be 24 volts to run radios, and it has to be jump-started from 24 because everything we have is 24. And what they did is they decided to make the most complex hybrid 12-24 system instead of just redesigning it for 24. So the engine actually runs on 12 volts. It's a 12-volt glow plug system. It has two 12-volt alternators that each charge a different battery. The starter is 24 
And that's really the only thing on it that's truly 24. The uh, What they did to make the glow plugs work right is they ran a giant resistor on the firewall. And uh, when everything was working right, that worked fine because it dropped voltage enough that along with the glow plugs, which are just resistors, it, it worked fine. But the problem was you had a series parallel set of resistors then. And when one glow plug went out, that changed the math. And that fed higher voltage to the rest of the plugs. Well, that made the next glow plug go out faster and on down the line. And if you didn't catch that first or second glow plug that went out, pretty soon they're all out. Yeah. yeah. Everything else in that truck, instruments and everything else, they just fed off one of the batteries, 12 volt. So you can actually, all the only component you have to buy to change that truck to a 12 volt is the starter. And you can actually pull that starter out, put a new starter on there, and sell that used starter to the guys that are keeping from 24 for probably more than you paid for the good 12-volt starter. Very cool. And I will say this. Don't buy a $99 Chinese starter on Amazon or eBay. Buy a real Delco if you're doing it, and get one of the real Delcos or Nippin' Densos or Densons that was made for the 6.5, which will be a gear reduction, and it'll be a much better starter. That's what I run on mine. And uh, make it 12 volts if you get it, and you'll be much happier. And if anybody, uh, if you email me, uh, Tim at oldgarage.com, we've got a, uh, uh, I can send you a copy of a PDF that was put out uh, by a place in Michigan that told uh, fire departments that got these surplus how to make them 12 volts. That's got great step-by-step pictures of exactly what to do, and it's very easy conversion. But, yeah, the, the government's, Pretty much, they're out of the system now. You rarely see them sold surplus, but you can you can find those on Craigslist. Uh, search for military truck or military diesel, and they they will pop up. You won't you will rarely find a running truck, uh, the 1008 version, under four thousand or so, uh, just because, like I said, the value of the axles, uh, even non-running, you know, people will give you know over two sometimes for them because they can take the axles, scrap the rest, and be happy. The blazers will go a lot cheaper, and most blazers you find now, there will be rusts on the rocker panels. It's typical for them, uh, but you can't have those replaced. Yeah, I've kicked myself. A long time ago, I had somebody send me a link, and it was a 1008 that had ended up in the hands of some county government in Tennessee. It looked like it was in pretty good shape. It had basically a, a cargo box and a generator on the back of it. And I think they were. Yeah, asking, I think that was me that sent you the link. It might have been you. I think they wanted like sixty one hundred bucks for it or something, and I didn't buy it. And I feel stupid because that the generator yeah, that, was probably worth almost as much as the the cost of it. Oh yeah, that was actually the M ten thirty one, which was the contact truck version. I spent a lot of miles fixing stuff on the side of the road in those. Uh, it's a twelve kW PTO generator in the bed that powered the welder and the air compressor and everything that was in them. Some of the older, the earlier versions, sometimes you'll find them instead of the PTO generator, they actually had a gas-powered Wisconsin uh, welder generator in the bed. And those are the ones where they had actually taken the bed that had been on one of the Dodge versions of it and put it on the Chevrolets. But later on, they started doing them, yeah, with that uh, PTO generator. And that's a nice setup when it's working right. The only downside is it's loud because you've got to turn the... uh, got to run that engine at pretty high RPMs, and it's not very fuel efficient. 
So you don't want to use it as a long time standby generator, but when you need, you know, power out in the field to do something, it'll do it wherever you drive it to. And they also made the uh, M1010 version, which was the ambulance version. And I've seen a lot of people build some really nice, you know, expedition vehicle See, campers. See, now you're getting, you know, but, I never even thought of that. That's a that's an RV waiting to happen. <laughs> oh, it is, yeah. I've seen some guys do some really nice conversions on those things and make, you know, really nice trucks in the back. I knew one guy that did one and uh, started in Canada and ended up in the tip of South America driving that thing. The only place he had to uh, couldn't do was the Darien Gap down in Panama where you had to put it on a ferry to get around. Everything else he drove. Wow. You, you're creating too many ideas in my mind, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I will warn everybody, uh, Jeeps can be an obsession, you know, that they, that's the, the old saying is they stand for just empty every pocket. <laughs> you, you get one and you're like, well, I want another. Well, I want to do this. I want to do this. But uh, they're a lot of fun, and the great thing about them is they hold their value. And, and now the Cut V series of uh, pickups and blazers, you know, they're holding their value too, and I'm starting to see the prices on them rise a little bit. You know, supply is what's out there is out there. They're not making any more of them, and every day a few more of them end up wrecked or scrapped. So, you know, the value on those, you buy one, unless you do something stupid to it, you're not going to lose any value with it. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, you know, you remember when the, the Swedish Mauser rifles came on the market in the 80s, and you could buy three of them for like, I think it was like 110 bucks or something like that, stupid. And uh, about that time, some. Gun Magazine came out with a guy that sporterized one, and everybody and their other Bubba did it too. And, you know, look at the, the, the price of a, a non-altered uh, Gustav uh, Swedish Mauser today. And and people thought for oh, years, oh, I'll yeah. just get one one day. I'll just get one one day. I'll just get And I think kind of we're starting to see that, that corner turn with a lot of things from kind of the, 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 the era, you know, that we're talking about here from like the 50s up until the 80s. Oh, yeah. You know, my, my thing on surplus is I've always told people, you know, buy it when you see it because the supplies, you know, they come out and then when it dries up, there's so many things over the years I kicked myself for, for not keeping some of them when we had them or not buying more of them or not putting them back. Uh, yeah, the Jeeps are definitely on the upswing. I think the heyday for buying Jeeps was definitely uh, the late 80s, early 90s when I first started messing with them. When I think of the stuff I passed over then – that now I would be jumping on it twice the price uh, because, you know, it was totally different. You know, a 60s Jeep in 89, <laughs> you know, wasn't that, you know, oh, there's that thing over there. I had it for a while. But now, you know, people are seeing more of the value in them. Sure, sure. Well, hey, before we wrap up here, you got anything going on at the shop or anything going on cool that people might want to know about? Uh, well, right now we do still have, I, I kind of extended our holiday sale right now. Uh, we've got a sale going on. Any any purchase over uh, $100 is 10% off. Now, it shouldn't be a big deal to your listeners, all of them, because they all should be TSP members who already get their 10% off. But uh, I've got that going on. I do have uh, – I will tell people, if you've been thinking about getting one of the military sleep systems, I'm probably about two weeks away from having to do a $20 price increase on the sets because uh, components are getting harder to get. So uh, now is the time to get one of those. The next production run of those ponchos we're having custom made is about to come off the line. So if you get an order in now, uh, we can get them out as soon as they come in. Uh, we, For those that don't know, I took the military poncho spec. I got tired of 
I was I had a good American manufacturer that quit on me. I could only find Chinese ones, so we took the mill spec and we totally redesigned it. We're making the best poncho anywhere now, and we're doing it all, you know, right here in North Carolina. And I've got, uh, I've got right now. I've got the military locking slot webbing that a lot of the TSP members have ordered. Uh, that is almost gone. So if any of you guys wanted that, uh, I would say grab it now. That's about all I've got going on, other than. Uh, those of you that have been to my website, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see a big change. We're migrating our e-commerce platforms. It has been a big task, uh, something I never should have tried to do in-house, lesson learned. But you're going to see big changes on the website that should make it a lot more functional for everybody. And the website, for those that don't know, is oldgrouch.com. Well, very cool, man. I appreciate you being with us today, Tim. All right, yeah, fun to be here, Jack, and uh, glad to always be part of the show. And remember, folks, if you have questions about military vehicles, military surplus, radio communications, specifically ham, but any radio military uh, radio uh, communications questions, send them in for me uh, with TSPC expert in the subject line. We'll get them over to Tim for an expert counsel show. And again, hey, man, Tim, thanks for being with us today. Congrats on your retirement. And thank you for your service. Thanks a lot, Jack. Well, all right, folks, as always, I enjoyed having Tim on the air with me. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and hopefully it didn't put too many project ideas in your head. Uh, as he was talking, I was scanning GSA.gov for uh, M1010s, the ambulance one. That seems like a pretty cool project. I probably won't do it, but... I'll think about doing it anyway. Anyway, uh, if you enjoyed today's show, if you thought you got maybe 20 cents worth of value out of it, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. That's how you can support the work we do. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. When you do that, you'll see all the great companies I get you discounts from. And uh, if you uh, if you take part in those discounts a few, three, four, five times a year, you'll pay for your membership just out of those alone. And you'll know you're supporting the show that we bring to you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Next up, uh, the other way you can support our show is by uh, simply doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go to tspaz.com, click the link to go through to Amazon, and just buy whatever the heck you want to buy. Whatever you were going to buy anyway. Doesn't cost you any more money. Really doesn't take you more than a couple seconds of extra time. You know, bookmark it on your, on your, on your smartphone or whatever, tspaz.com, and whenever you're going to do your Amazon shopping, just go there first. That's all we ask. That's the easy way to support the show. And again, it doesn't cost you anything. Today I have kind of an item you might be going, huh? Really? TSP item of the day? It's the Tweezerman Professional Stainless Steel Toenail Clippers. Well, why would I have that? Well, first of all, we all have to trim our nails or we look like idiots, and it's a sanitation and hygiene thing. It's definitely certain something they used to inspect when I was in the military, you know, to make sure your nails aren't becoming a sanitation hazard or something like that. So you need a pair. Um, and then I'm a dude, right? I'm not some weak-nailed little namby-pamby thing or something, and I've had a hard time finding a pair of toenail clippers that don't look like diagonal cutting pliers that'll cut my toenails without having problems and these things are a beast they're really tough they cut right through even my uh, old man toenails and uh, so they work good uh, the next thing is they're multifunctional um if you don't have nail clippers in your fishing equipment you either don't have fishing equipment or you're wrong i hate to put it that way but when it comes to you know tying rigs and stuff like that, needing to trim off excess uh, line, 
nothing, I mean absolutely nothing works good as good as nail clippers. All fishermen tend to have some nail clippers, so these are great for that. And then next up, they're affordable. They're like six bucks and change a piece. Uh, so it, it's not, you know, going out of left field to, to go ahead and say, look, I'm going to have all the same kind because I know they work. And when I lose a pair, and I'll get to that in a second, I go out to my tackle box and use the ones out there and they're just as good. Um, so you can buy, you know, four, six sets of them and put them in your, your tackle boxes and your toolkits and stuff like that and use them for things beyond your nails. And then the last thing is kind of what I just alluded to is losing them. Um, I don't know what it is, and I don't believe in the supernatural, but if there's gnomes or little elves or some shit like that that come out and steal stuff, I'll tell you what they steal from me. They steal Sharpie markers, they steal um, t t uh, tape measures, and they steal nail clippers. Those are the three things that they steal from me. I lose these things. I'm talking, I'm in the garage with a tape measure, and I put it down on a table, and I turn around, and it's gone. And I might find it in a week or a month or never again. I, I must have bought a thousand tape measures in my life and hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of freaking pairs of nail clippers and probably thousands of Sharpie markers. So I guess the little gnomes adore those things. But you know, I don't want something that I'm gonna I know I'm gonna lose sooner or later. I don't want it to be expensive and I still want it to be good. And that's why I, you know, kinda looked around on Amazon and I found these and figured I'd give them a shot and Ordered a couple of them, and, you know, I, I continue to buy them, and I continue to lose them. I just don't understand it. And I bet you I bet you the one that everybody out there agrees with that's a dude anyway is tape measures. They, they, those things just seem to vanish like a fart in the wind on a daily basis. I don't understand it. I need a little tracker Bravos on them or something like that so I can track them down. Um, but these are a great little tool. Again, six bucks and change. Definitely in your fishing kit, definitely in your medicine cabinet. Uh, I usually keep a couple around. I got one left in my medicine cabinet I haven't lost yet. I Maybe I'll put a rat trap next to it and see if I can catch one of those uh, evil stealing little gnomes or elves or whatever the hell they are that steal all my stuff. Anyway, tspaz.com uh, to do your Amazon shopping and check out the item of the day. There's a link there to do that, and we're putting different stuff stuff up every day that we actually use here at the TSP in Nine Mile Farm Ranch. Uh, and last but not least, the song of the day. So song of the day today, I was like, I wonder if there's a song about Jeeps. And uh, so I just went to Google, and I put in song about Jeeps. And the number one result uh, was a video on YouTube called It's a Jeep Thing by a dude named Paul Randy Mingo. And I listened to it, and it's kind of formulaic modern country music, kind of redneck, modern redneck country You know, kind of like Luke Bryan went redneck or something like that. And it's not my personal first choice in music. It really isn't. But it's not a terrible song. And it's not about the kind of Jeeps we were talking about, but it's about Jeeps that fits today's theme. Here's the bigger reason, though. Music is subjective. Just because I'm not in love with this song doesn't mean there's going to be a whole bunch of you that might really like it. And I'm sure I play songs I love and some of you dislike it. And that's just the way music is. Music's not, music is universal as a thing, but it's not universal as a song, right? You get a song you think is the greatest song in the world, you just think it's beautiful and amazing piece of music, and other people go, nah. And then somebody like feels like, oh man, you gotta listen to this song, you're like, nah. Or man, that sucks. So, it, this may or may not be your cup of tea, but the guy's independent. This guy's an independent guy making his own music, and he's, he's pretty good at what he does if you like his style of music. So, Give it a listen, and uh, maybe you know, go by the site. I always put a link on the show notes to, to YouTube, and, and, and click the link. And if, if you like his music, subscribe to his channel. Independent artists need your support. Trust me, I may not be a music musical artist, but you know, when, when I'm definitely an independent, basically audio journalist. And 
Independent guys need your support, man. So so check out Paul Randy Mingo, and it's a Jeep thing. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Driving along summertime with the top down. I got mutters on that crazy lift to me three feet off the ground. I got Travis Tread and John Jones sitting in the back seat hollering, play me. I got a four-ton wedge on the front, pretty sure it'll save me. Well, it's a Jeep thing, you wouldn't understand. Rough and wild, it's ready to ride, it ain't no minivan. When you're cruising along in a mud hole And you're giving her all you can Go and get yourself a Jeep, son Maybe then you'll understand